All right, good morning, everybody. Mike Courtney here, Mass Mutual, Eastern Pennsylvania, on a chilly end of March, Wednesday morning. I'm joined by my good friend and counterpart, Steve Parisi. Steve, how are you today? Fantastic, my friend. It is nice and chilly outside for a cold run, but I'm doing well. How about you? Brings right around the corner. I'm doing exactly. good. Uh, Steve and I are talking a little bit about policy design with regards to some of the cases that we work on, uh, specifically, you know, we're always talking about whole life insurance. We're always talking about cash accumulation and different ways that we can structure some of these contracts to, to maximize cash accumulation. So, um, Steve, we were talking about a conversation, uh, similar conversations both of us have had in the last couple of days with, with advisors who are really hung up on what kind of splits between base premium and rider premium and how to toggle with those riders to maximize your cash value, to maximize future performance. Um, I'm always surprised by how these conversations go and that a lot of times the, the advisor's coming in with this set idea of this is what it has to be and feels to me like there should be a little more flexibility. Yeah. Um, thanks for mentioning that. Definitely more flexibility, and I'll use the word more tact too. Um, so what you mentioned, yesterday I had a conversation with a really nice guy, and he was working with um, a dentist or dental practice. Just They're looking to put a significant amount of money into a high cash value life insurance policy, had met with someone else, and they were told that a specific way to design policies is just the best way to do it. It was something like a 40% base premium and 60% PUA, technical stuff, right? But the thing is, is the licensed agent heard that, looked at the numbers, and the licensed agent is a technical guy. So when he runs numbers for himself, he sees something completely different. He says, wait a minute, that's not the case. If I go lower on the base premium, I've got more cash value. The um, business owner, they were both on the call together for, at the uh, dental practice, practice is considering getting licensed. So as they're meeting with this other agent, one thing he said that kind of jumped out at me is the other agent kept saying, hey, if you're licensed, I'll put you in this case. And the higher the base premium, the higher the commission is. And that didn't that didn't affect the business owner. He was like, I don't really care about the commission. I'm interested in the cash value piece. How do I maximize that asset? That is my point of interest. Let's focus on that. And then whatever the commission is, that's all well and good. But what they discovered on their own, um, and we had a call with them after the fact, was by continuously lowering that base premium, adding the proper riders, make sure you don't mech in any kind of environment, current dividend guaranteed, all that good stuff, that they'd have more money. And they were particularly interested in cash value life insurance for a number of reasons, but the the early cash values, because it was an asset on their balance sheet, if they wanted access to it, they liked the idea of that. But if you're going to flow six figures per year, potentially six figures per year into a policy as a, as a business-owned policy, a COLE, that is an asset in the balance sheet. And the first year, if it's a negative hit, if you're using traditional whole life insurance products, People look at their P&L, doesn't sit well with them. So how do you minimize that? That's a very, very important piece or a pain point for the consumer. The other agent was on there as well. So he's asking, he's like, why, why do some people come on so strong to say that 
The only way to design a policy is with a 30%, 40% base premium, 60%. That's typically the range we get. Um, that was his his question after the conversation he had with that other business owner. I hope I articulated that story clearly. If Let me know if it didn't yeah, make sense. Well, let, let me ask you a follow-up question before, yeah. before it slips my mind. So I've I've been in these these type of conversations before. What I've never really gotten to the bottom of is like in my mind, if you know that the, there's if I'm explaining that there's a certain way to do something and it's here, and there's another way to do something that's here, but you don't want to be here, what's the risk? Mm-hmm. So is or if your blend of base to rider premium is less, did I just pick up some kind of risk that I'm not aware of in some way? Good good question. So specifically, if I look at a 100% base premium policy, same thing in 100 grand per year, and I can go 100% base premium, which would give me zero cash value in the beginning. A lot of people don't like that. Right. Say it's 50-50, 50% base, 50% PUA. You can throw 3070 in there as well, or 1090, which is as low as a lot of the major mutuals will allow you to go. Side note, some smaller companies let you go lower than that. So the only, let me start with this. If I go 100% base premium policy, I typically never have to worry about a MEC. If it's a traditional whole life 100 paid up at 121, there's basically no MEC risk because I'm adding nothing into PUAs. When I start to add PUAs, there is a MEC risk as the years pass, but that MEC risk is always based on the total death benefit. Regardless if I'm using a term rider, the total death benefit is a combination of the whole life death benefit, any paid up additions as I add PUAs to the policy that will increase my death benefit as well. And if I have a term rider attached, that also increases my death benefit. So as that MEC test occurs beyond the first seven years, really what is tested, what's looked at is what's the total death benefit? The cash value accumulation does play a role, but what is the total death benefit? So to hit on your total question- death benefit relative to premium pay. Co- correct, yep, correct. But that's, you can still run that risk even though that MEC warning didn't pop up on your issue illustration. Oh yeah. Yeah. And we've seen that happen to people. Typically, like when I've seen it happen the most, our policies at a 30 dividends go down. That's it. Yeah. Paid up additions or what was expected. Yep. Yeah, that's I'm it. Surprise though. That it feels like that would have to be a really drastic situation. It's easy to prevent. That to um yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it, it is easy to prevent. One, you can forecast it by looking at conservative dividends and even looking at an illustration with just, with just the guarantees. That's a good way to forecast it before you start a policy. If you found out after the fact and you find out, hey, I'm funding my policy up to the MEC limit and dividends came down, the death benefit's not appreciating at the same pace as originally illustrated, I'm going to MEC at year 15 or something like that. What you'd have to do in that case is just reduce the PUA payment a little bit and just look at it as the years pass each year during your annual review, look at an enforce illustration and just scale down the payment a little bit. Um, That's if you find out after the fact, but it's easy to prevent with any blend Um, to kind of hit on your 
original question, what's the risk with a lower base premium? There isn't one if you know what you're doing from a design standpoint and you put the time in to actually stress test the policy, mech test it is what I'm referring to there to make sure you don't mech in any kind of interest rate environment, any dividend environment. Like that's, that's the key there. It's easy to prevent. You have to put more time in, but that's it. Yeah. I mean, you, you, you and your firm have, I mean, you probably can put a number on this. I don't know how many, you know, whole life policies you you've put into four in force over the last 10 or 15 years. But, you know, this is something that comes up every day or once a month or, um, you know, like, yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I don't, I don't see a lot of policies. I don't see a lot of enforced policies where you now I, I just might not be involved because maybe the advisor is working with the client on an enforced scenario and they didn't pull me into it. But a lot of times when there's a weird enforced situation, the advisor will pull me in if it's a policy that's out of my agency. And I can't think of any scenarios anytime in recent memory where somebody had an enforced policy that at issue was not projected to mech, but now we were, you know, we were getting a warning or we were getting some kind of notice from the company. Yeah, when it has happened, it's typically due to just a lack of awareness. For example, with the mech limit, it's a seven pay test. That's another name for it, the seven pay premium. So when we're new in the business or if we're never made aware of this, a lot of times we think that the MEC test is the first seven years. And after that, we don't have to worry about it. That I used to think that when I was new in the business, seven pay test for his first seven years. Like, why would it not be that? I feel then like I, I thought that until about two minutes ago. Okay. <laughs> then I was enlightened. I'm like, oh, this was many years ago. <laughs> but um, my point there is often what a lot of guys would do is design a policy where they fund up to the MEC limit drop a term rider after seven years, attach a term rider just for seven years, minimum cost that way. And you can do a lot of damage, meaning beef up your cash value, damage in a good way. And then if a client said, hey, can I continue to max fund it beyond the seventh year? The answer was yes, right? Because uh, an agent perhaps had not dug into it and actually seen, can you continue to do this? Then they would drop the term rider as well. And then all of a sudden discover, I told you you could put in a hundred K, but it turns out it can only pay in 38,000. That can cause a situation where a client says, wait a minute, like you told me 100K, how can it be such a drastic difference? Like, do you not know what you're talking about? Maybe that goes through someone's mind and that's where a nerve is struck. Like this kind of stuff happens to everyone in every profession when we discover things that we don't know about. Um, and, And it's like, you know, A, you can try and make up some answer or, you know, yeah, cloud it with something else, you know, throw a smoke screen up there if, if that makes sense. Or B, you just say, okay, I learned something new. Here's the reason why. What can we do to you know, resolve this matter to the best degree possible moving forward? Um, but, you know, do you have an ego or are you humble about it? Like that, that's really what it comes down to when we learn new things. That That's how I view it. Yeah. How are you, um, you know, you've got a lot of advisors and brokers that are coming to you with cases and with questions and with issues. And um, I know that you've got in-house advisors who are, you know, kind of, let's call them your your in-house 
sales team, but there's also a lot of external brokers that are that are collaborating with your agency. How are you getting them up and running with regards to case design or they come to you with questions about illustrations? How are you how are you handling all that? Yeah. So ILS is really where we point them. Our agent academy that we hit on in our last podcast. Um, sort of direct anyone there for more info on that. Um, but ILS is a great way to understand how to design policies, specifically how to work the software. Because one thing I'm very, very big on is if you're an in-house agent, right, we've got our own process and you have to follow that, right? Because it's people coming to us, wanting a policy, what they see in our marketing. So we've got to be true to that. If you're a broker working with us, well, we don't do any joint work per se. Per se. We just charge a flat fee for ILS and they brokers keep 100% of their business. But I am not going to dictate or even attempt to dictate or tell them, you know, if you're subscribed to this, this is how you should design policies. Like if you're a broker with us, for example, you sign up with ILS, however you run your business is 100% up to you. And to answer your question, if you have questions on case design and such um, that's not in the training platform or something didn't really answer it 100%, what do you do is say, hey, I'm working on this case. Here's the design I'm going with. I'm looking at just this one product or a number of products. Here's the illustrations I came up with. Can you take a look? Would you make any tweaks here? And then I'll look at them, provide some feedback. Hey, I make changes A, B, and C here. Here's the illustration I ran up quick. I would try and reverse engineer this and help them the same way I would if they were working here in the office with me. Um, but typically that's done via email. And then we've got the mastermind calls on Wednesdays. I typically do not take Zoom calls and phone calls with people because then I'd be doing that all day with agents. Yeah. Um, so that that I don't do, not not yet at least. We'll have some service in the future for that. But right now, that that's how we'll help them, if that, if that makes sense. And I think this kind of stuff, policy design, like a lot of times it's somebody who might be new to a particular, you know, maybe they're not familiar with Mass or they're not familiar with Guardian and they're not familiar with how the software works. And once they are, policy design training for six months mm -hmm. you know i mean you need to figure out how to move the pieces around to get them to do if if you're wired such that you're gonna you're gonna digest everything and understand it yeah. um then i i think you can pretty quickly get up to speed and, and be able to show some different options yeah and the people that will subscribe the brokers and agents that subscribe to that are the people that want to know the answers for themselves as opposed yeah. to just hearing it from you, hearing right. it from me, hearing it from someone else, because that's the situation. I'm sure you've been here where you you get a question from a client or a prospect, they're not a client yet. You don't know the answer. You ask your senior, right, a manager or someone that is a reputable source, been in the business for a while, and they give you a particular answer. You think it's right. You go back and translate that message to the client. And then only to find out it wasn't accurate, right? Or there were some important pieces of information that were not in that response. And then the client gets a full response from your most hated competitor, right? Just to use that. And now it's like, dude, like uh, I didn't get that. Now I have to make sure in the future that I actually dig in and get the answer for myself instead of just listening to someone else. Because, and that's not, you know, anything against your manager or anything like that. But and I'm very big on seeing things in writing, the specific verbiage, 
policy design, whatever we're talking about, like I want it validated. I don't want to just hear about it. Um, so that's something we really lean into. Um, I probably spend too much time on it, like when I look at a time value standpoint, but it's important because people have questions on it. So we're going to take the time and, and dig into it, if that makes sense. It does. Um, I was just thinking that I'm, I'm continuously surprised by, I mean, I guess I shouldn't be surprised because people are creatures of habit, but from an, a, an advisor perspective or from a sales perspective, I'm surprised at how many brokers will come to me consistently asking for the same thing yeah. for different clients. Um, I want to see this design because that's what they're comfortable with and that's what they're used to presenting. And, but your mindset and your mentality and what you've built at your agency and try to promote is a lot more of, you know, listen, what is the consumer looking for? That's it. Yeah. Listen to what they're looking for and try to give them what they asked for. That That's it. I, I, and I, I think it's not going to be one size fits all. No approach. Yeah. Approach is so, so important as well. I'll give you an example. If someone is doing research and they come and say, hey, I'm looking at putting X amount of dollars in, I'll use 100 grand per year just because it's a nice round number. Someone's putting 100,000 per year in and I'd like to see a policy designed for maximum cash value, but then they put in, I'd like to see a 40-60 split and a 10-90 split, which immediately tells me they've been doing their homework. Um, but we get that quite a bit. And here is what I notice on that exact point. Um, when someone asks, hey, can I see different designs, a 4060, 1090, maybe they throw something else in there. That means the agent has their work cut out. Like they got to put the time in with the different illustrations, explain the mechanics. Like there's, there's work that goes into that. You can go one of two routes, or I see one of two routes completed. One, I'll tell you what, what we do first is show them everything. Yeah, it's going to take more time and more work, but we're going to do it, show it, explain the pros and cons of each design with different companies and products. This way they see it and they, we actually honor their request. Now, all of a sudden, we're approachable in that respect. That's approach one. Approach two, and this happens way too much, is someone will say, well, what do you want to see the other option for? Like, this is the best way to do it, the 4060, or I wouldn't recommend that. This is definitely a best option, or you can't do the 1090, 4060, whatever. Because I just did that to somebody yesterday. <laughs> did you? Like, you don't want to see that. I'm you don't just want to realizing that. that I did. Because it, sa it saves time on our end, um, and, yeah. and, it, and it happens. I but, knew I was going to be talking to him today, so I'm, I can explain <laughs> it. But <laughs> Gotcha. But the instant we do that, we might not realize it. And perhaps we've been successful in the past where someone said, okay, I take your word for it. And they just want to see the, the option that you recommend. But when you get an analytical buyer, that's not going to work. And maybe you think it thought it worked on the phone call, but then all of a sudden you find out they're talking to someone else who's showing them all the options that you didn't. And you're in trouble there um, from a competitive standpoint. Or we get very, very stuck with respect to what, what to do or what not to do. And people approach clients in an aggressive manner saying, I would never design a policy in this way, or here's the best way to do it. And you've got to keep in mind that this is the client's money going into a policy. It's their money. So they've got a right to see any type of design they want. They can take their time with it, be, show them the same respect you would want if you're, if you're looking at different options. 
I view it like when I look at my policies or anyone's, if I go years back, I would look at every single design possible and I'm like spending my whole day just looking at different illustrations. This was years ago, just to understand it in and out, aside from the historical performance. But like do the same thing. If someone wants that, go all out for them. If they want it simple, keep it simple. But it's about the consumer. And keep in mind how you approach them. If you're aggressive or if you say something demeaning, your tone's wrong, that kills deals more than people think. Um, so you've got to be respectful and just be willing to put the time in. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Um, anybody out there, uh, financial advisors, insurance brokers who are listening, who are you know ever intrigued by any of these conversations that Steve and I have, um, feel free anytime to reach out to me, Mike Courtney. Uh, my primary role is Mass Mutual Brokerage, and I'm your go-to for Mass Mutual product solutions, whether they're life, disability, long-term care, fixed annuities, all things Mass Mutual in the brokerage world, uh, we can work together. Um, I would urge you in particular, if you're looking for um, you know, somewhat of a back office training in particular um, with regards to cash value life insurance sales, Steve and his team are the best in the business. The ILS, uh, where can they find ILS, Steve? Yep, ILSAgentAcademy.com. Okay. Um, if you need help, this is where you need to go. You're, you're going to just find an endless database of training, support, content, sales strategies, policy design, um, you know, just kind of in, industry best in class as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Um, Steve, thanks for the conversation today. Certainly. Thank you. It's ILSTrainingAcademy.com. I think I ILS training. training Academy. Sorry. Just yeah. in case, yeah. <laughs> but no, thank you for your time as always. Get on there and check it out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Steve, have a thank great week. You. you too. Thank you so much, Mike. You're Enjoy. Mm -hmm.